Italian food expert Fred Plotkin can recommend some of the best things you've ever eaten all across Italy. But for him, the very best place to eat in the world is Bologna. If I really just had a week left in life, I would go to Bologna and finish my life with tagliatelle and lasagna. It's the home of fresh pasta. Find out which cities make it on Fred's list of top culinary capitals and what sets them apart from the rest. The Japanese are not foodie, they're fetishist. Plus, correspondent Michael Breen tells us how much South Korea has changed in the three decades he's been living there. He says it's more than just an economic story. They're aware of their rights and their freedoms, which the older generation wasn't aware of. They didn't know that um, it was okay to complain about being beaten. Step inside for a view of life in South Korea and stoke your appetite for the best food cities in the world. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. When you look around South Korea today, you'd probably never guess it was devastated by civil war 65 years ago. So much has changed in the last generation that correspondent Michael Breen had to start all over when updating a book he once wrote about the country. He shares his insights into what makes South Korea work and how he thinks reunification of both Koreas will happen. That's later in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. But first, what's for dinner? There are a lot of interesting places to eat around the world. Fred Plotkin suggests there are a number of great cities that you just have to visit at least once in your life to experience their local culinary scene. Now, for years, Fred has updated his guidebook, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, and he does it by enjoying the country's many regional specialties. Boy, talk about a tasty gig. His current project is hosting a lecture series at the Smithsonian on cities with outstanding food cultures. He's back with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to explore his top recommendations for that series. Fred, buongiorno, or I guess I should say buon appetito. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's uh, exciting to think that you're hosting this series at the Smithsonian there on uh, six great culinary capitals. Tell us about this series that you're doing. Well, I've been lecturing at the Smithsonian for years. I just completed a 20-part series about the regions of Italy, and I speak about music, about the arts, about pleasures, about literature, about the art of listening. And I decided, because so many people have asked me, what makes a great food town? And it's not necessarily the restaurants, it's a lot more. And so the Smithsonian asked me to pick six, and I did, and I plan to do more in the future. So Fred, before we visit the specific cities, let's just first talk in general. What makes a particular city a world gastronomic capital? Because I would imagine these six towns that we're going to go to have certain things in common. They do. Um, One is that they typically have access to great agriculture. Not all of them do, but, um, for example, Bologna and Lyon and San Francisco are surrounded by some of the most gorgeous farms in the world Hmm. that produce great what's called materia prima, primary materials, that can be used in the kitchen because if you start with a great cheese or a great head of spinach, all you have to do is respect it, and that's what the chef has to learn. Then there are cities that are big amalgamators like London and Tokyo that bring in food and wine from everywhere and sometimes give their own twist on it. And then there are cities that are both amalgamators and have great farms around them like Buenos Aires that to me is an undervalued food capital, but one of the really great food cities of the world because it has everything within 
10 or 15 miles that you would want to eat. Okay, so the, the list is there. Bologna, Buenos Aires, London, Lyon, Tokyo, and San Francisco. Let's just yes. go through these one at a time. Which one would you start with and why? Oh, Bologna, because if I really just had a week left in life, I would get right on the plane. I would say goodbye to New York and go to Bologna and finish my life with tagliatelle and lasagna. It's the home of fresh pasta. So tortellini, tortelloni, every imaginable kind of pasta, passatelli. And each day I would have one or another. And one of the great things in Bologna is that if a pasta is really good, they don't cook it in water. They cook it in a rich broth made of capon and saffron and so on. So the pasta tastes even better. And then it gets the appropriate sauce to go with it. Ragù alla bolognese is a meat sauce that has nothing to do with the spaghetti alla bolognese of the eat in London, which is really ketchup and ground meat. But it's a fantastic combination of carrots, different kinds of meat, milk that softens the meat, just a touch of tomato, a little bit of nutmeg. It's a very sophisticated sauce. But Bologna, to me, also has the best food markets of any city I've been to in the world. And I was a student at the University of Bologna, and twice a day, six days a week, I would go to the market. I'd go in the late morning to see what I felt like having for lunch, and I would buy that. And then at about 6.30 in the evening, I'd go to see what I felt like having for dinner. And how many people shop 12 times a week? But it was always such a pleasure because... Going and seeing the animation and learning, I learned so much about food there because, for example, I would go and ask for a tomato. Most places in the world, they would say, how many? In Bologna, they say, what are you using the tomato for? And I would say, well, for a sauce. Oh, then you want this tomato. If you wanted to cook fish with it, you want that tomato because mm -hmm. it has less acid. And if you wanted to make a salad, you use this tomato. So you learn all about the ingredients. The market sellers know everything about their products, and they take great pride in giving you the best, which is frankly not something you encounter everywhere. Sometimes they just try to get rid of stuff that they can't sell. In Bologna, it would be a crime to give you less than perfect food for what you want to cook with. There's that passion that's not just among the chefs, but among the, the eating populace. There, People just, I noticed in Italy, they love to talk about food like other people talk about the weather or sports. Or sex. <laughs> they prefer talking about food to sex, I assure you. <laughs> At least with me. And <laughs> But what's a really important thing, and we should get this out of the way, is that they are not foodies. Foodie was invented as a term in Oxford in 1984, and it was a negative term. It was invented by a man named Paul Levy, who's an American, and the idea was that it describes someone who was trendy, who read about the latest food product and bought it, not knowing what it meant, what its history is, or how to use it. So you and I, Rick, are not foodies. We are food lovers. We're foodists, perhaps. Thank We're you for that distinction. It. And I don't eat <laughs> kale just because it's in the newspaper eating section. <laughs> Culinary connoisseur Fred Plotkin is whetting our appetites today on Travel with Rick Steves to visit the best places to eat in the world. He's profiling these Epicurean capitals in a monthly lecture series at the Smithsonian in Washington. Fred also authors the book Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Okay, so, Fred, what is yes. the next uh, city on this gastronomic greatest hits tour? The next city, in fact, is Buenos Aires. 
It's a very large cosmopolitan city. And let's think about where it's placed. It's on the Rio Plata, a very large river, very close to the Atlantic Ocean. We think of Argentina for meat, and it has magnificent beef and lamb, but it also has a huge coastline. You know so-called Chilean sea bass. It's neither Chilean nor sea bass. It's an Argentine fish, and its real name is Patagonian toothfish. But if you call something that, nobody buys it. So it was renamed for marketing purposes Chilean sea bass. But it is a very popular fish found off Argentina and is found in the cuisine when the Argentines once about every month decide not to eat a gorgeous steak. Hmm. And when you go to steakhouses in Argentina, they have what's called an asado. And asado is sort of a grill where they prepare all parts of the animal. And for the squeamish, you should just sort of look away from your radio right now. But <laughs> it's very delicious. And every smart asador, the person who cooks it, knows very well how each part should be cooked. The Argentines, unlike the Americans and the French and the British, cook their meat more. And frankly, if you want a steak cooked a little less, you have to say so. Hmm. Otherwise, it will arrive well done. Another difference is that the beef in Argentina is grass-fed, whereas the beef in America is corn-fed. We Americans have fattier beef. The Argentines like it leaner. It has a lot more character. They cook it beautifully, and they make sauces such as chimichurri that go with the beef. And it's heaven. But Argentina also is a fantastic wine-producing country. It's number five in the world for quantity, and I love Malbec wine. And Malbec wine is a red grape, and it goes beautifully with the beef. It is also vinified so it can go with fruit. And one of the great mm. things I've ever tasted was a Malbec raspberry ice cream in Buenos Aires. Mm. Heaven. Ah. Because they macerate the berries in the wine, and then it comes out in the ice cream. The pizzas are very good because they have a large Italian population. The pasta is not bologna, but it's very good. And it's a huge eating culture. They're very passionate. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with gastronome, cultural maven, and pleasure activist Fred Plotkin. And Fred's exploring some of the world's top culinary destinations with us right now. Fred Plotkin is the author of a book I really love. It's Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. And Fred leads opera and food trips for New York Times Journeys. Okay, Fred, we've got Bologna and Buenos Aires. What's our next stop on the world's six great culinary capitals? Now, don't laugh, but it's London. I would laugh. But London... <laughs> <laughs> Mushy peas I, and know, fish and chips? Come on, Brad. <laughs> well, also because the joke is, why did the British ration their food so they don't have to eat so much of it? But London has had two rough periods, basically, um, when there was rationing after World War II, and then again when mad cow disease struck in the 1980s and 90s affecting beef and lamb and, and other meat products, chicken included. But I must say that in the longer view, London has always been a great food capital, and now again it's reclaiming that mm -hmm. because it is a city that is multicultural. It is the seat of a former empire and now of a commonwealth so that the spices, the flavors of South Asia – 
are very popular in London, and not only in Indian and Pakistani and Bangladeshi food, Mm -hmm. but also in British sauces and British savories, for example, things that they might combine with cheese and spread on bread. Hmm. The cheese of the United Kingdom is some of the best in the world. Hmm. Stilton is magnificent. The cheddars are. London is also the wine capital of the world, not in terms of production, of course, but as a market. And historically, wine journalism began in London. The masters of wine, the people who are experts, are London-based. The city is the capital of an island, so it's surrounded by beautiful fish and seafood. Hmm. The British farms historically have had great breeds of cattle and sheep, and now that they're much more responsible and sustainable, the quality of these foods is higher than ever. British apples are excellent. Other British fruit are excellent, though they have a bad habit of importing from Washington State, sorry, Rick, and from New Zealand. But when you eat local in the United Kingdom, you eat very, very well. And that can be found in London, plus all the exotica of the empire. Fred's recommendations for dining out in London are just ahead. And we'll look at the rest of his top culinary capitals, too. We're at 877-333-7425, or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Later in the hour, we'll hear what's turned South Korea into an economic powerhouse. Thanks for coming along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring Fred Plotkin's six favorite cities in the world for people who like to eat. Fred's reputation as an expert on Italian cuisine is confirmed by his definitive guidebook, Italy, for the gourmet traveler. As we've heard so far, Bologna is his top food city in the world. Buenos Aires gets rave reviews for its cosmopolitan palate, and right now we're exploring how its international character has boosted London's reputation as a culinary capital. If you were to really make your point by taking me out to dinner in London, would you find the best cuisine in an example of English cuisine, or would it be something more eccentric or from distant lands and exotic? As we're speaking, I was in London about three weeks ago, I try to eat local foods in every country I go to. Mm -hmm. And I happen to love fish and seafood. Mm -hmm. And there are a few restaurants that I go to in London where I always have local British fish that's beautifully prepared. Dover Soul is heaven, Mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. And the only two places that you can eat it really well is in England and in Belgium. And the dressed crab, it's called, which is really undressed crab, it's taken out of its shell. Uh, the prawns that come from the the Bay of Ireland, Bay of Dublin, and all of this fantastic seafood from Penzance, from nice. Cornwall, means that you really can eat first-class fish and seafood in London every day. And then, of course, there are fish and chips. If you were in London and you wanted to go take me to a nice uh, fish restaurant, what's your favorite fish restaurant? It's called, now they'll never, we'll never be able to get a reservation, it's called Jay Shiki. And it's just north of Trafalgar Square in the National Gallery. And it's an old restaurant. They do, I just had a fantastic scallop and prawn burger hmm. that was just amazing, nice. frankly. Jay Shiki. And Jay Shiki, and they do a very good job. Nice. Because it's in the theater district, you see a lot of actors there. I've yeah. seen Diana Rigg and Judy Dench and Kenneth Branagh and people like that. So some people go to look at the actors. I go to look hey. at the soul. Okay, so we've got London, Buenos Aires, and Bologna. Uh, we got, what, three cities left. Talk about the next yes, one. Yes, so 
Lyon. Lyon is really the only place that can rival Bologna. Hmm. But where Bologna is superior is it has pasta. But both Bologna and Lyon are the pork butchers of their countries. And if you like pork, it's amazing there, the hams, the sausages, and so on. Lyon also has wonderful poultry. Some of the best chicken anywhere is called poulet de Bresse. And it's just a roast chicken in Lyon is heaven. They also have amazing fruit and vegetables. And nearby, of course, is French wine, which is not bad, and wonderful cheeses. So all the products are there. But what I love about Lyon is you can have cuisine de grand-mère, grandma cuisine, or you can have Paul Bocuse and the three-star chefs. I get tired of the three-star chefs. Now, that sounds snobby, and I don't mean it to be. But I just find haute cuisine to be a trial for everyone involved, whether it's the diner or the chef. And I prefer grandma food. And Lyon is really that. You know, Fred, I was in Lyon, and I, I knew Paul Bocuse, your great chef and so on. Isn't he the guy with Nord, South, East, and West, those four restaurants? Yes. Yeah, I went to two of those. And I was impressed that it was not that pretentious. I thought it was really good. Well, it is, and they've simplified. But I think what I want our listeners to also know is you don't have to spend a fortune to eat really well in Lyon. Right. If you are interested in doing that, and if you have the resources, fine. But don't stay away from Lyon if you don't have that kind of money. Good point. Uh, you can eat really well there for 30 or $40. Nice. To me, the countryside of France is just, if you choose a good restaurant, and I'm not saying the highest rated restaurant necessarily, but just it can be a fantastic value. If you're going to splurge somewhere for food, I love to do that in France. Take us to our next gastronomic capital. Tokyo, the largest metropolitan area in the world. It has the largest fish market anywhere in the world. I'm not a, much of a believer in Michelin stars outside of France, but it has more Michelin-starred restaurants than any city mm. in the world. And the reason, very simply, is the values that Michelin imposes are French values, which work very well in France, but they may not work well in New York or Tokyo. I would rather, in Tokyo, do what I do everywhere, eat with the locals. So having noodles and wonderful pork broth, tonkatsu, mm. or going to the fish market at 5 in the morning. If you like sushi, this is really the place to eat sushi is Tokyo. Mm. But the Japanese are perfectionists. So some of the best iced coffee, perhaps the best iced coffee I've had anywhere outside of Rome was in Tokyo. The cakes, everything are perfectly prepared. Perhaps they're too beautiful. And the Japanese are not foodie, they're fetishist. And sometimes the way something is cut, the visual beauty, the presentation counts for a lot more yeah. than, say, a bowl of pasta in Bologna. But there's the visual aesthetic that's part of the experience yeah. in Tokyo. But also, I love the fact that in such a large city, the people are incredibly polite and friendly, and you can be shoulder to shoulder in a market and everybody has their room and everybody has their moment and even if you don't speak a word of japanese you're made to feel welcome especially if they see you enjoying their food and if you're eating it wrong they will teach you how to eat it properly <laughs> it's interesting you say that because i would say the city i've enjoyed eating in more than any other is tokyo for me yeah. it's just an adventure everything about it and i don't even i don't know if a michelin uh, authority would come in there and check out every little tiny bit of quality, but the experience is just 
delightful for a Western traveler especially. Also the bars, the sushi bars and, and the meat bars and so on, you come up, you nod to the chef, the chef bows to you, you point at what you want, he mm. or she will prepare it for you. There's an interaction with the person preparing your food yeah. that is different from most cities yeah, in the world, and that's part of the experience. That's part of the whole experience. Fred Plotkin's telling us about his choices for the best food cities around the world today on Travel with Rick Steves. Places he insists you must visit sometime in your life if only for an unforgettable meal. Fred's hosting a monthly lecture series on great food cities at the Smithsonian in Washington. Fred has also compiled the definitive guide for eating in Italy in his book, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Okay, we'll finish things off uh, here in the United States. San Francisco made your, yeah. your list above New York, New Orleans, and um, L.A. That's that's quite a... And I'm a New Yorker. Yeah. And my New York friends object to this judgment, but I really feel I have to be fair. When I judge a city, what San Francisco has more than any place I know in the world is the highest average level of food preparation for basic dishes. So the hamburgers in San Francisco are better than elsewhere on average. The scrambled eggs in the morning are better on average. There's a little coffee shop that I go to at the edge of the Tenderloin, which is not the fanciest part of San Francisco, where all the omelets, the juices, the muffins, the way the fruit is cut is perfect. And the kind of thing that you would see in three-star restaurants in France and in, in Italy and so forth. And here it's a little coffee shop in a, in a marginal neighborhood. Mm. And there are many places like that. And, and the noodles that I get at a Japanese restaurant on Union Square mm -hmm. are as good as Tokyo. Mm. The fact that they have all these farms and the districts outside for growing food makes it better. And the ferry terminal market on Saturdays, it's one of the great food markets of the world because the farmers bring in their food. The restaurateurs come to the market. Chefs and food writers and, and homeless people all gather together. They all get food there. San Francisco has a wonderful militancy about feeding people who have less than others. And it has a lot to teach us about the fact that food should not be fetishistic. Food is nourishing. Food belongs to all of us, and it should be clean, safe, and available for everyone. And that is something that San Francisco does very well with a very high quality of cooking. And it does it with a, with a celebratory attitude about uh, diversity and, and multi-ethnic cuisine. Yeah, but cultures. for example, the breads there are better than most cities. Yeah. The butter is delicious. The cheeses are great. Huh. The basic things, the, the fruit in the market, the vegetables... When I go to San Francisco, I usually go once a year. I bring a big bag, and I bring produce back to New York because it just tastes so much better. I buy almonds and cherries. The and sourdough bread. That, what about the sourdough bread? I just there's something well, about I it love in San sourdough Francisco. bread, but only on its own or with butter because frankly, it has such a strong taste that it conflicts if I'm having it with a fish stew or meat or okay. or other things. Or certainly not with cheese. Okay, I will have the cheese with fruit. But, you know, California, Sonoma County especially, makes fantastic cheeses. All right. So this is quite a list. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Putkin about great food cities of the world. Fred's the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Christy's calling from Seattle. Hey, Christy, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Are you getting your appetite stoked listening to Fred? 
Yeah, she's making me very hungry. What, what comment or question do you have about uh, this topic? Well, what I love about food around the world, I've done a, a bunch of traveling, and um, I fell in love with Indian food. Um, we spent three months in India, and what I didn't realize is that the Indian food you get in the States is normally uh, northern Indian food. And we spent a bunch of time in southern India and completely fell in love with southern Indian food, which is it's similar, but com- you know, a really uh, very, very different from the kind of food you would get at a at an Indian restaurant in, uh, say, Seattle or, or San Francisco. And so surprised by that. And it, it was it's just wonderful. You do get a wrong impression from a cuisine a lot of times when you're exposed to it in a country where people emigrated to, because it reflects where people emigrated from. That might be part of it. But, uh, Fred, uh, what's your take on Indian food that you'd experience here in the United States compared to what you'd find in India? Well, Christy, a confession. Uh, number one, I've never been to India. Number two, it's my second favorite cuisine after Italian. I adore it. And I seek out people here in the United States who are from India, and I go to their homes and I ask them to cook for me and teach me. And you refer to southern India. I particularly love the cuisine of Goa, G-O-A, mm-hmm. which like southern Japan, was invaded by and then involved with Portugal. Hmm. So that there is a Portuguese element in the food of Goa and in Nakasaki in Japan. And Kerala produces some of the most amazing spices in the world. And they really know how to use them without overspicing. Kerala also has a lot of vegetarian food. So you either have Goan shrimp, which is a Portuguese thing, or you have Kerala vegetarian dishes, and they're heaven. You Indian know, food is fantastic. I, I loved visiting Kerala. That's my favorite part of India. It's the very southwest coast of India. And you mentioned uh, vegetarian. I've never done this before, but in South India, especially Kerala, for some reason I just felt it was right to go vegetarian. So I did that part of my trip as a vegetarian, and it just felt right with the culture, and the food was just delicious. You never go hungry in Kerala. No, I love it. Hey, Christy, thanks so much for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin about great food cities of the world. Uh, you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Matt emailed us from Libertyville in Illinois. And Matt writes, I recently started to venture beyond Europe and had a chance to go to Singapore. Incredibly pleased and surprised with the quality and quantity of food options, Indian to Chinese to Middle Eastern, even French. Hawker stands are cheap, safe, easy, and delicious. I can't wait to get back to explore more of the food and cocktail scene around Singapore. You know, Matt, I I remember that also in my travels in Singapore. They have these wonderful food courts or food circuses that it's just a festival of of diversity and and people just loving the the variety of food you get there. Fred, do you have any thoughts on uh, on, a traveler's food experience in Singapore? I've not been to Singapore yet. I've been to a lot of Asia, but it's eluded me. I do love Singaporean food that I've had in London. Uh But what you're describing is my Istanbul. My Istanbul is a combination of water, land, Asia, Europe, Africa, spices, floral waters such as rose water, orange flower water, and so on that gives fragrance (laughs) to the food. Wonderful pastries, terrific coffee, wine if you want it. And it's one of those crossroads cities, and I imagine that Singapore is another. Mm. You know, one of the great eating experiences for me when you think about Istanbul is to have this. I, I'm not that sophisticated with food, so I need a, I enjoy having a local guide 
to walk with me and just enjoy all the food you can eat from the different stalls if you go into these different characteristic neighborhoods where everybody's out on the street. Uh, it's just a it's just a, a medley of beautiful, unforgettable food experiences on the streets of Istanbul if you have a knowledgeable person to help you know just exactly what you're eating and, and, and what not to miss. And on the banks of the Bosphorus, you can get fried fish sandwiches, which are very simple, and they're heaven. On those boats that rock like nobody's business, they always there's yes. always a big chop there, and I don't know how they do that, but they've got like an open fire on these dinghies, and you walk right <laughs> up, and it's literally fresh off the boat. Uh, you're buying it from the fishermen, and they slap it onto a hunk of bread and wrap it in some newspaper, and you're on your way. Fish sandwich, fast food, mm. Istanbul style. Michael emails us from Huntington Beach in California, and Michael's all over New Orleans. He says, New Orleans is a melting pot foodie city extraordinaire, blending multiple cultures, with each influencing this amazing city in its own unique way with wonderful fare. I've visited New Orleans several times, and each day I overeat simply because the food's too good to resist. Even in the touristy French Quarter, uh, he finds many fantastic restaurants. What's your advice on New Orleans, Fred? I love New Orleans. It's on my future list for the Smithsonian of places to talk about. If Michael is interested in learning more about it, I recommend an author named Jessica B. Harris. She lives in New Orleans, but she's a New Yorker, and she's the expert on what we might call Caribbean diaspora food. Hmm. So food from Africa, from Europe, France, and Italy especially, but also Spain, from South America, from the Caribbean all gathered in New Orleans. And Jessica Harris's writings are very interesting on how this happened and how this unique cuisine evolved. New Orleans is great, but it is its own cuisine. And I don't know if I'd want to live there and eat it every single day. I prefer more diversity. Mm -hmm. But to go there for a week and eat is magnificent. Caribbean diaspora. <laughs> That's a good term for that a dimension of that cuisine. And uh, we've been talking with uh, Fred Plotkin, and Fred's the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Uh, I know Fred's got a, a big place in his heart for Italian cuisine, but clearly he knows cuisines around the world. He leads opera and food trips for New York Times Journeys. Fred, uh, we're out of time, but I would like to just finish this wonderful and um, just sort of stoke your appetite discussion with uh, a gala reception. You're doing this... Uh, six-session uh, course for the Smithsonian. Everybody's going to get excited about all these uh, cuisines. If you're going to put together the ultimate menu now featuring each of these wonderful corners, uh, what would be on the menu? Well, if I were cooking, I would have lasagna from Bologna, steak from Buenos Aires, um, fish pie from London. I would have a pork spread from Lyon, and what I mean, just all kinds of pork. I would have noodles and broth from Tokyo, and I would have, this sounds strange but true, scrambled eggs from San Francisco. They're the best. Fantastic. And for dessert? Fruit. Fruit. From any one of the... <laughs> after no all that food, for me. fruit would be good. Although I do like the French, uh, what is it called, coffee gourmand tradition where you just uh, can't choose, so you just have a little bit of everything. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> That's very nice. Come on, admit it. That's true, yeah. This is Travel with Rick true. Steves. We've been talking with Fred Plotkin. And Fred, wow, what an exciting teaching initiative you're taking here. And I got to say, it is quite inspirational. Thank you so much. Thank you. How do they do it? South Korea keeps wowing the world with its economic prosperity 
technological innovations and even its pop culture. British-born correspondent Michael Breen shares his admiration for Korean society and what he's noticed as a longtime resident of Seoul. Find out what's behind South Korea's status as a global powerhouse next on Travel with Rick Steves. So much has changed in South Korea that Michael Breen realized he couldn't just update the book he wrote about the Koreans 20 years ago. He had to write an entirely new book. Breen has lived in Seoul for some 35 years now as a correspondent for major British and American newspapers. His outsider's perspective and insider's knowledge makes his latest book required reading for anyone who wants to better understand Korean society. In The New Koreans, The Story of a Nation, Michael Breen analyzes the Republic of Korea's rise from an impoverished post-war country into one of the world's major economies today. He joins us now from Seoul on Travel with Rick Steves. Michael, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Rick. Michael, when I think about Korea, it occurs to me it's a country that has become quite important in the whole scheme of things, but it's a country that most people know very little about. Now, you live, you're a Westerner that lives in Korea. Does it strike you that it's, it's a mystery to people from the outside? It, it is a bit of a mystery, and, and there are various explanations why. But for those of us who live here, you know, when we travel overseas and then are reminded of how little people know about Korea, we also find it puzzling. I mean, it's a topic of conversation here. I mean, one of the explanations is that the Koreans have been surrounded by the big powers, right. U.S., Russia, China, Japan, and so they seem to be sort of Mongolia-like, you know, like just right. very small and squeezed in the middle there. Luxembourg. Uh, but actually, they're <laughs> quite a sizable... Exactly, the Luxembourg of this part of the world. But in fact, a unified Korea would be, if it were in Europe, would be the second country after Germany. What would the population of unified Korea be? 75 million. 50 in the south, 25 in the north. When you set out to update your book, it's funny for me because I update my books all the time and I'm so thankful when a country is stable. Korea is changing so fast, it, it became a, a much bigger job. What was it that had changed so much for your new edition? You know, they say in this country that every five years uh, is a new generation. And I'm talking about South Korea here, not North Korea. North Korea stays much more the same. But South Korea just is such a transformed place that every five years you, you'll get people in their sort of late 20s saying, I don't understand these university students these days. I don't get them. You know, the thinking and the behavior changes so quickly. What's an example? How would a 30-year-old see things differently than a 20-year-old? The best example I can give you was the, there's a generation now who are in power politically. They're sort of in their 50s and 60s. When they were students, they were the ones who skipped classes, persuaded their professors to pass them when they hadn't really studied properly and spent a lot of time demonstrating against dictatorship for democracy. They were the generation that students in the 80s. Three or four years later, those same people after they graduated, so by the early, mid-90s, those people were complaining that all students want to do now is, is color their hair and go to discotheques. You know, they didn't get it. And that same sort of puzzlement seems to continue. So that's a, a real generation gap. It's a generation gap, except it just seems to be a little bit, you know, shorter than the one that we would recognize in the U.S. or in Europe. 
does the young generation just kind of take for granted its freedom and its democracy and its affluence? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They grew up, their fathers were driving cars, whereas in their father's case, they were probably the first one in the family to drive. Um, the parents went to university. They're middle class. They're the same. They think the same way that we do, and they, they're aware of their rights and their freedoms, which the older generation wasn't aware of. They didn't know that it was okay to complain about being beaten, you know, by teachers or policemen or what. Whereas the young generation, they know their rights. Is it more of an urban society now? I mean, I, I picture traditional Koreas, uh, villages and agrarian, whereas I picture today's Koreas, megapolises. I don't know how many million people are in Seoul, but I just feel like it's a massive city. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It was, um, I mean, old Korea was very much a, a farming place. Most of the people lived in villages that were sort of huddled at the foot of mountains. And in the 1960s and 70s, they started flooding into the cities. So they're now primarily an urban people. Uh, Seoul itself, Seoul proper is around 10 million, but this northwest corner of South Korea has 25 million people, and it has almost half the population live right here. The villages, I mean, the youngsters in the village now are the ones in their 60s. You don't hear the sound of children. If you go to these villages, the only children you see are ones who are visiting from the city, visiting their, their grandparents. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Michael Breen, and he's the author of The New Koreans, The Story of a Nation. Now, Michael's been a correspondent from Seoul for decades. Now he's married to a Korean, and he's helping us better understand what's going on in South Korea and its role on the world stage. Michael, you talk about the three miracles. What are the three miracles that you're talking about? I've actually changed one of the miracles in my own mind. So l- let me explain the miracles. This is not original. It- it's sort of a way of structuring a book or explaining how a country has emerged so rapidly, the most rapid emergence of a nation in history. And you break it down into three parts. When I first came here 35 years ago, the economic growth was already apparent, and they were referring to it as the miracle on the Han River. The Han is the river that flows through Seoul. And so that concept was already there. And the reason it was a miracle is just nobody expected it. At the end of World War II, the promising economies in Asia were Burma and the Philippines. Hmm. And the Koreans were written off. They were down there when the UN first was formed in 1948 and the first statistics came out. The Koreans were down there with the Sudanese and the Ethiopians and the Haitians. And then they had a war. You know, so that was before the war. Then it Hmm. got worse. Hmm. So the first miracle was economic. They started to industrialize with with a vengeance. And that was led by a dictator, a military dictator. And it contained the seeds of the undoing of the dictatorship, which led to the second miracle, which is democracy. In other words, as the middle class starts to develop, as they start to get wealthier and have choices about things in life, they start to want to choose who their leaders are and what newspapers they read and that sort of thing. And that leads to a a clamoring for democracy. Hmm. So that was the second miracle. It was a miracle because it was just so unexpected by the Koreans themselves. And the third miracle, now when I wrote the book, the first book 20 years ago, I thought to myself, well, you know, 
three is a better number than two, so there's got to be another miracle coming. Uh, it's it's reunification with North Korea. I've changed my mind on that. I don't think that will be seen so much as a miracle. When that happens, which it will, I think the world will just look at Korea and say, well, what, what took you so long? You know, it won't have the flavor. It'll be important and mm. thrilling, but it won't have the flavor, uh, the characteristic of a miracle. So what I think the miracle is, it, it's cultural. It's the arrival of the Korean culture to the world scene. The Koreans are taking their seat on the top table along with other countries that you just feel familiar with, you know, the Australians or the French, mm -hmm. uh, the Germans. So the Koreans, we're becoming familiar with the Koreans. I mean, specifically, it's their movies, their TV dramas, their pop songs. The way I understand it, the government has an initiative, a department of pop culture, and they're just trying to make Korea a sort of a trendsetter on the Pacific Rim, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they. it didn't really start with the government. The government, it's a bit like the British government promoting the British invasion in the 60s. The government has sort of jumped on the bandwagon mm. once they saw how popular these young Korean, particularly boy bands and girl bands, were in uh, other parts of Asia. And now they haven't really hit it big in the U.S., funny, so your, your listeners might be less familiar, but in other parts of the world, people go nuts over these Korean stars. So Korea is cool in Japan and in Hong Kong and in Thailand? Is, oh, is that, yeah. Korea is cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of Japanese and other Asians, like the Japanese particularly, come to Korea and they visit the locations where movies and TV dramas were shot because they're in love with the male stars. What's an example of a Korean style thing that, that would be trendy in Japan? One thing is, is the Koreans are seen in this part of the world as really beautiful. The, the Koreans, they don't have hang-ups like we might do about plastic surgery. They don't have sort of moral qualms about plastic surgery and things. They have a sort of attitude is, look, one of the funny things about life is you never actually see your own face. All you ever see is a reflection. Why is that? It's made for other people, so you might as well make it look as beautiful as you can. So most, probably a majority, I'd say, of Korean women have had at least one procedure done, and a lot of men have. What's the model in Korea? What do they, to what do they aspire? They don't like the, the Asian eye, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of the narrow eye. So they have a little procedure to, they fix that. And so you'll get these Asian stars who, have, who somehow look different, and it's because they've got big, big round eyes. They like a more pointy nose, and the complexion, you'll see people walking around here in the summer with umbrellas and they all everybody puts sunblock on mm -hmm. so the paler complexion is preferred but, and that's because as in many parts of the world the tanned look is more associated with being a farmer which is not cool it's, it's just kind of old-fashioned yeah low class the korean male is now the biggest consumer of male cosmetics in the world and women are huge consumers of cosmetics as well. And they have no brand loyalty, so they'll switch all the time. So this society is a huge test bed for all the cosmetic, global mm. cosmetics mm. companies to, to test out new products. So for the Japanese and the Chinese and the Southeast Asians, this is a big attraction. 
they come here for medical procedures or they just come here to kind of bathe in the, the vibes, so to speak. Michael Bream's joining us from the BBC studios in Seoul right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His book, The New Koreans, has been compared to de Tocqueville's analysis of 19th century America for his look at what's behind South Korea's rise as a high-energy 21st century example of a modern and prosperous nation. Michael, in your book, you talk about defiance as as kind of a characteristic of the Koreans. What what do you mean by that? I was trying to find in the book, I was trying to sort of ponder what was it that made... You know, there's two countries in the world in the modern era that have grown with astonishing rapidity. It's Taiwan and South Korea. For five decades, these two countries maintained 5% economic growth. No other country's ever done that. And they're both democracies now. And they're, they're influencing China. And they make me believe that China will go this way as well. China will follow them. That China will become a democracy. And I've sort of pondered about, well, why is it? You can look at policy, but you know, policy doesn't explain everything. Underlying it, there needs to be some energy, some underlying sort of motive that is shared by, you know, whether you're a liberal or conservative or whatever you are, there's there's sort of a collective attitude. And I think with the Koreans, I I try and characterize it as defiance. It it was a kind of angry defiance. Like we won't be kept down? Um, We have been at the bottom you know, mm-hmm. yeah. we will never go down again. And it is also an anger at history. Their own history had delivered them in the modern world mm. to the back of the queue. So they have no, I mean, despite what a Korean will tell you about their wonderful history, they have zero interest or respect in their history. Mm. Anger at the North Koreans. The North Koreans claim to be purer and more virtuous Koreans than the South Koreans, because the South Koreans depended upon the Americans. They consider that sort of immoral. And so the South Koreans have this sort of fury against the North Korean arrogance and the sheer scale of the violence of the war that they started. And somehow the first president of South Korea, he articulated this defiance. He was a very difficult ally for the Americans to deal with. He was useless from an economic point of view. It was the second dictator, who was a military dictator, who he basically put a hard hat and overalls on this defiance and set it to work. He harnessed it. Maybe affluence and democracy and uh, enough money to have cosmetic surgery so you can be really cool is the best revenge. Uh, Korea seems to have a a lot of determination in that regard. On the the other hand, you talk about it as an unhappy society. You know, the, the telling statistics are that South Korea has the highest suicide rates among developed countries and the lowest birth rate. I think I think actually Japan is around the same, but South Korean women are among the least fertile, if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Michael Breen, and his book is The New Koreans. And Michael, when somebody wants to go to Korea to understand it, to feel the pulse of Korea, let's uh, cap our, our discussion with just some advice from you as somebody who's got a friend coming to Korea. What would you recommend they be sure to do? to get a sense of, not Korea, but the new Korea? 
what they need to do, what they need to prepare themselves for is this isn't like going to France or Italy where you sit in a cafe on the, the cobblestones by the medieval church and, you know, sip wine or something or lie on a beach. It's a kind of very energetic place. I mean, you, you can do those things, of course, but it's not why people come and it's not what you will find so easily and so readily. So you have to come to Seoul. You'll fly into Incheon Airport, most likely, and that's about an hour away from Seoul. So you should spend time in Seoul. Go to the markets. For younger people, go to the entertainment district near the Hongik University area. And you just get this sort of vibe. There are so many people here. And the thing is about the Koreans in public... It's not like, you know, sometimes in other countries where there's lots of people around and they're all sort of drinking and whatnot, you, you sort of feel a little bit nervous. And, you know, I'm speaking as a British person here, and I think British men, when they have too much to drink, and women, in fact, as well, behave pretty badly. But the Koreans are very, very friendly people. It's very safe. If you're a foreigner, particularly, it's very safe, very safe place to be any time at night. So you're saying if you want to experience the new Korea, go to Seoul and uh, live as a temporary... Seoul, go to Seoul. And just be out in the streets and the markets with the people. Yeah, be out in the streets, you know, be in the market. I mean, it's a small country. You can get anywhere within about three or four hours. Another part that's, is that there's an island called Cheju Island offshore, which if you are spending more time here, I'd strongly recommend you go to. It's beautiful. And there's a lot to see there, both natural beauties, a volcanic island. And, uh, Michael, you're you're married to a Korean woman, Michael. Let, let's say you've got a big anniversary mm. coming up. Where would you take her in South Korea to really make her happy? Well, as my wife's Korean, to really make her happy, I should probably do the honorable thing and take her to another country. I mean, there's a huge, <laughs> there's a huge appetite for Koreans to go out. But I'm avoiding the question here. I would take her to either the coast, east coast or west coast. There's a huge thing on the east coast of sunrise watching, which is very romantic. It's where and there's some beautiful spots for it. It's where people get up in the morning, they go onto the beach at like five in the morning when it's dark, and they watch the sun come up. All right. Hey, well, Michael, <laughs> thank you so much, and best wishes with your book. It's fascinating to think how Korea has emerged in the space of one generation, really become a, a player on, on the world scene. Well, thanks very much, Rick. I've enjoyed talking with you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City and the BBC in Seoul for studio help this week. Rick produces updated walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find the latest ones in Rick's Audio Europe travel app. Look for it at ricksteves.com slash radio. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.